Alrighty. We are on. We are on. Did you hear a I saw it. If you go, I actually posted it on my Facebook. That's the ones. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And watch them both because he, he started out to write a book on, from what I understand, on why do people who have no chance of success end up being successful? Because there's there's case after case after case of, of people who have who have been un, who had no chance they, they don't misfits misfits yeah they should you think we're misfits right that that should not have succeeded um, who turn out to be very successful it doesn't make sense and so he's writing a book exploring that idea and it he, that's where he started from and he's in the and Glenn asked him he says. I'm going to fix you. I'm sorry. I'm Is he... Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Is there anything else I need to comb my hair? You know, your underwear sticking up. No, that's, that, that you'll have to deal with. Please don't touch that. <laughs> um, he he says, he goes, are you a religious man? Uh, we're talking about this book here, David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And Gladwell has written books like uh, Tipping Point uh, a few years ago, uh, na- national bestseller, um, what was the other one that I? I you know, there's there's a number that I've heard of. I read one of them. I can't remember the title. So Tipping Point Blink. Blink is another very famous one. I've heard of them. And uh, what the dog saw is. Uh, so these are yeah they're they're they were national bestsellers. He's a uh, he is a. Um, oh, what magazine? New Yorker. He's a New Yorker uh, writer for the New Yorker. Which Glenn Beck said, he goes, it's his first question, he goes, are you religious? And he smiled and he says, well, here's the deal. He says, he's like, grew up in a very devout family. I think he's Jewish. Jewish, Yeah, Yeah, he's Jewish. He's He's like, he's like, I started out in a very devout family. He says, but then in, 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 uh, after high school, he says, when I went to college, walked away from it, had no desire for it, really lost interest and, and really even never even thought of it. He says, I didn't even really think about it all the way through his career. And he sat down to write this book, and the thing that he found was that most of the people who this scenario fits were were people that they don't think they're going to, there's no, how can they possibly succeed? And then their success, that one of the things that they, it, an open-ended statement, they never, he was not trying to lead them there. He didn't expect to find it. They all came back to faith. And he said, he goes, there's something here and, and and faith in something bigger than themselves because not all of them were Christians but they had faith in something bigger than themselves and so if you want to pull that uh, that chain behind you there give it a little bit more light for you and so he said in the process he says he, it has brought him dramatically back into into a a search for truth and a search for something bigger than himself, and uh, what? So then, you know, he, he said the uh, the uh, uh, I don't want to say epitomal because I don't think that's a word. Uh, the highest the, the story that is the most recognized is the David and Goliath story. That David should not have been able to succeed against the seasoned warrior as a young man. Blah 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 blah. blah. But he says it comes back to faith. It comes back to he believes something strong enough that that he was convinced that he was going to succeed. And so 
that is one part of the book. He said the other part that he was not expecting was then why are we not seeing success in other parts of our lives? And he gives the example um, of a uh, of school uh, school class sizes. He says there was a push from the 60s and beyond to lower class sizes, thinking that that would be the thing that turns around education in America. And so they kept reducing classes, reducing, spending more and more money to get more and more uh, teachers so that they can have lower class sizes. And I just heard a report this last week where, um, I don't even know where it's at, it may be in the Twin Cities, because I don't, I don't want to quote it because I can't quote it. But the idea is that they're going to go to a two-teacher system, that every classroom will have two teachers thinking that that will be how they can how they can solve the problem and he says it's the exact opposite he said that that it is that they have found statistically um, that the more students you have in the classroom versus how many teachers you have in the classroom it causes them it makes them have to figure things out themselves Mm -hmm. and he says it's actually been detrimental to bring in more teachers because now they're 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 used to being spoon-fed and he said that, uh, so the other thing that he found, one is faith, and the other is, it's okay to suffer. There are some things in life, it's, it's okay to have adversity, and to have to deal with the adversity. People who have, you know, and, and he, he didn't, as far as I know, he doesn't quote this, but, uh, you know, it would it was be something that you relate to and probably have heard before, um, the uh, uh, oh, now that I said gave all the info or the, the lead up to it, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, Dan, um, he was a wrestler in Iowa. Dan Gable. Gable. Dan Gable. Huge successful wrestler. He was he was uh, uh, four time state champion as a high school. Yeah, never lost. lost in college like his last match. He never lost a single match in college until his last one, where he went into confident and lost. He went. Uh, he was a uh, gold medalist, gold medalist in the Olympics the first time through. The second time through, he would have been America's first or first two-time gold medalist in wrestling. And a week before, or a month before the tournament, the, the Olympic tournament, he hurt his right arm, his 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 dominant arm, and he had to come or his leg. It was his leg. It was his his right leg. And he had to completely change his style in one month to wrestle the best people in the world, which nobody thought he could do it. They thought, they thought it was absolutely impossible for him to make it. And he trained and trained and trained and trained and trained to, to change his whole style to have a left leg dominant style. And they never scored a point on him in the whole tournament. In the, and he won his, his second Olympic uh, medal. And so... Then he became a coach. And hugely successful. So it's talking about how that adversity, you know, in America, we're we're constantly trying to um, make it easy on ourselves to 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 uh, diminish uh, pain and suffering. Path least resistance. Right, and what it's causing us to become is less successful, and we see it. I mean, every one of us can see it. You know, you look at who is the greatest uh, uh, generation. The ones that went through the, the Depression and, and World War II. Mm-hmm. But why were they the ones who were the greatest generation? Because they had to overcome more. And so they, they rose to the potential because of the adversity. 
Does anybody want to go through a war? Absolutely not. Does anybody want to go through a depression? Absolutely not. But instead of fearing those things, fearing, okay, so here we are now, bring it back to, to where we are today. Instead of fearing the world situation that's going on around us, let's rise to it. You know, let's, let's face it and rise up to it and we'll do great things. And our kids will do great things. And I just had a, a, a person who's very, uh, probably one of the most uh, influential people I know personally in the financial world. I was having coffee with him today. And he said, he goes, the years that we saw um, the 80s, the, the 70s, from, from the 50s to the 80s, were the best years that in, in known time for affluence and, and for for um, wealth creation and wealth creation and all those sort of things. He says okay. we'll, we will never see it again. He says it will not happen again. He said it, it's it is almost it, at this point it's virtually impossible financially for that to ever happen again. And but I, and my first thought was no, it's not. Not for an individual. Maybe as a as a society as a whole. But not for an individual who. Well, so you make an example of um, <clears throat> fracking. Mm-hmm. I mean, without that, this country would be screwed. Mm-hmm. But that was not a government program. It was not anything. No. And just now, there's uh, there's one company that's produced. Actually, it was on the Star Tribune webpage, and I copied it this afternoon. The United States is now the biggest producer of oil in the world. We just turned the page. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a big milestone. It wasn't a government program. It wasn't. You know, top down. That hmm. was a bunch of people figuring it out. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Science, technology, the result. It'll take a collective change in yeah. our society to reach that again. <clears throat> which will be have to be a lot of stuff yeah. to come back to that. Yep. Yep. And, okay, so here we are in a Bible study, 15 minutes in, further, we're not going to get any further. How do, it, it totally applies to her life, to Esther's life. We would not know Esther if there wasn't this crisis. You know, it, she would have been a a a blip on the screen. In Nobody would have heard of her ever. There would have been no reason to. Been a mark on the sandstone. What do they call them? Yeah, the little sandstone things. The the where they wrote down history. Yes. The, where they wrote down you know the records. So, you know, it was the adversity that defined her, and literally every person we know in the Bible is the exact same thing. It's all about adversity. It's all about the human condition. You know, uh, the the garden was supposed to be a perfect place. Guess how God created it. Okay, we screwed it up. And it's been the lot in life of every human being since then to to honor God with their lives or not. That's their choices. But it, it, the, the, you know, his desire was always that they would honor their honor God with their life through the adversity, through the sweat of our brow, through the, the work of our hands, through through the things, and to think that somehow we can be exempt from that and still be successful is beyond, it, it's, it, it should not even be comprehended. It should not even be discussed because, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, see, I'm, I'm going to get in my soapbox. I'm already saw in the soapbox. My little state is a good recent example of adversity, you know, through all of his illness and everything. Mm-hmm. He was a big jerk, but, you know, he rose above his cancer and stuff to come back to Apple. But he kind of came from nothing, though. I mean, he just came from regular middle class. <clears throat> yeah. And and how much more for those, for the people of God? 
how much more for people who are walking by the Spirit and led by the Spirit and have have the 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 power of God, the anointing of God to do what they do? How much better for us to think that we're just going to have this easy life where we're just going to slide through and everything's going to go? Oh, it's going to be perfect. Sorry, it's not going to happen. And it didn't even really happen between the fifties and the eighties either. You know, it, I mean, all the all of the uh, um, you know the good old days. Like my dad said, you know, everybody talks about the good old days. My dad's 83, and he goes, you know, he says, I grew up in a, he grew up in a, uh, a wooden house with tar paper on the outside of it. That's where he was born. And they had to haul water every day because they didn't have flowing water, huh? Outhouse. And they had an outhouse. And he said, he said, even worse than the outhouses, they had a bedpan. You know, they, when it was so cold, they didn't want to go outside, so... His job as a kid was emptying all the bedpans out the next day, you know. So it's, you know, he says, the good old days weren't all that good, he said. So we should start doing That'll, that'll raise them right. Amen. Maybe if you guys, oh, never <laughs> In the 60s in Vietnam and 70s with stagflation, it was never that really. Exactly. It, it's, it's not as, it, we like to look back and say it was easier, but it was easier because we were young and our parents were dealing with the problems rather than, uh, rather than us. Right. I have a theory, if I can. It seems like after the Depression and World War II, that everybody, the whole country, wanted to like blow off steam. You know, kind of. Like you had a you had a hard week at work, and you want to go out with your friends and have a party or whatever, just kind of blow off steam. And you know, you don't really you don't want to argue with people. You don't want to think about the problems. And it seems like the whole country went to a party, but they never left the party. You know, because you come home and you start living frugally, you get back into reality and you live in reality, but the whole country never left the party. They're still there blowing off steam. They never came back to reality, and they don't want to argue with people, you know, like Christians. They want to just compromise with everybody because they don't want to come back to reality, I guess, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense to anybody. Well, I mean, I looked at that. I went to my 30, 30th class reunion. 30th class reunion, and there was a whole group of people who never grew up. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are, there is nothing changed in 30 years, and I, I, you look at that and you go, my goodness, you know. I don't know. And, and I think that's, there's, there's some mindsets in America that definitely feeds into that, especially even with young people. You know, I, I was a youth pastor for many years before I ever became a senior, or associate or senior pastor. And kids, they, I mean, the world wants to keep them kids, and they don't want to grow up. And, and there's a point where you got to grow up. And I actually think it was much younger than than um, where we even where we could imagine it right now. Um, I was just looking uh, Christian history. Uh, Brian Eager reads these, gets these, and then passes them on to me. And it's talking about the uh, the church to end all churches, the unifying vision of the Stone Campbell movement, which none of us have ever heard of. Uh, I had not. I recognize the. So apparently, didn't get real far. Oh, it's huge! No, 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 no. It's 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 huge. We just don't know it as that. The um, recognize the name, but I couldn't you, tell anything about it. Right. The the uh, uh, the churches that came out of the Stone. Uh, Stone Campbell movement 
were the Christian churches. You know, our church, our church's name is River Valley Christian Church. That were, were that's a completely different name. We're not associated with the Christian churches, but all over the East Coast, Southern uh, Texas, you know, across there, it, it's a huge um, denomination of they're called Christian churches. And people like uh, James Garfield was a minister. He was one of our presidents. Was a minister in a Christian church. Um, Pentecostal, correct? They were they're Pentecostal. Yeah, they're Pentecostal. Um, so uh, James Garfield, Lyndon Baines Johnson was uh, baptized in a Christian church. Uh, Ronald Reagan was a member of a Christian church and actually went to uh, the Christian church uh, uh, college disciples. It's called Disciples Affiliated Eureka College. Um, so it's a huge movement. One of the um, I'm trying to find it here really quick. You got me off on a complete different tangent. Where is it? Janice Joplin. Janice Joplin was a Sunday school teacher in a Christian church right <laughs> until right before she That's hit it big. Me. Yep, hit it big with. Where did I just? Yeah, shoot. Well, I, I wish I could. Yeah. I wish I could find the actual article. There is a, a story in this. Uh, I'm not going to find it. That's a bummer. There was a, a young man who got saved, and he decided that he needed to give his life to Christ, and that he needed to give his whole life to Christ, and he decided to, to become a preacher. And he started walking. He decided he wasn't going to, he was going to do it biblically. He wasn't going to save up money and, and have somebody support him. He just started, one day he just w- started walking, left his home, started walking, and wherever they would allow him to preach, he started to preach. And he preached for the, he was 16 when he started. That was, that was the point, was he started when he was 16 years old. You know, he wasn't 30 years old. He wasn't 35. He was, he was 16 years old and just started going and, and doing something for God. He died when he was 44. I mean, it was a little rougher life than we deal with now. But uh, he, he preached all over the South. And he was known, he was known as the, 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 the preacher in the white robe because he chose, he chose not to dress um, like in normal. He, he wanted to be different. And he was different, but but he was 16 when he started doing it, you know. And, and we we now we 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 you know our society believes that well you really can't do anything until you go to college and this and you know they, they somebody back then tried to get him to oh no 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 I'm sorry oh you. me no, sorry. <laughs> tried to get hello tried to get him to go to college and he refused to go. He says I'm just, I'm going to go preach and he did for the until he was 44 years old. So praise the Lord. Got me on a soapbox. See what happens. I apologize. Let's pray, and we'll get into Esther. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your your hand is upon us. Your hand's upon our generation, our 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 children, our grandchildren. Father, your your hand is upon this country, even. And Lord, you are you have a plan and a purpose for this country. And and Lord, no matter uh, no matter what happens, your ultimate purpose for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached is going to happen. And Lord, we we see that in your in your word. We see that in in this book of Esther. That no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter what the problems may be, that 
ultimately you will do what your word, what your purpose and your plan um, is. You will fulfill it. Your arm is not too short. You are not um, weak in this area. But Lord, you are more than able to fulfill your plan and purpose for our lives. And so, Father, as we, we as we talk about that tonight, we'll we'll look at. Um, Open our eyes to those things, Lord. Open our eyes and open our heart especially to be able to receive that word that no matter what the circumstances are or what they may even look like, that that there is nothing that is impossible to you. We thank you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just a real quick background into what we're... You know, we find ourselves in Esther. They were in captivity. They were in a. You found it. Very good. Let me just read it real quick. Uh, the, uh, who was that in the white robe? Um, Joseph Thomas, the white pilgrim, uh, was a uh, was sixteen. At the age of fifteen, he got saved. At the age of sixteen, he began to preach, and he was known as the uh, the uh, the white pilgrim. So you can look at this article. I'll pass it around real quick. Interesting stuff. Um, so they're in bondage. They're in captivity. Um, this is not a good situation. You know, they are. They're. They're. They've been uh, seventy years. Um, they. This is in that period of time when they've started going back, building the temple, or rebuilding the temple, um, populating the area. Then they rebuilt the wall. It was in between the the uh, rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the wall and so um, they were exiles they were they were in captivity they were in bondage um, Esther herself was kidnapped basically just you know walking down the street she was she was grabbed and put into into a harem said you're going to be one of the wives of the king um, we would look at that today you know none of us. Uh, would want that for our daughter. None of us would want that for our, our children. But we see this over and over and over again, where these horrible situations that people find themselves in. You know, uh, when we're talking about um, the prophets, you know, Gideon. Gideon was was a was the, the, where he where, where God used him to to save Israel mightily was in the middle of. An invasion, an invasion from a foreign army, um, you know, a horrible situation. Even the time of Jesus, when Jesus was on the earth and fulfilled his call, fulfilled his his destiny to the letter, to the you know, to the ultimate level, <clears throat> was in the middle of captivity. Was the the Romans had overrun uh, Israel at that point, and so it does not matter what the extenuating circumstances are around us. God can still do what he says he will do. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, we would love to say in a perfect world, we could do this and this and this and this. No, he doesn't wait for a perfect world because there will never be a perfect world. There will never be a, a, a perfect time for us to, to believe God to do what he says he will do. You know, um, I was just listening to a, a video. Somebody sent me a video on a clip, or it was actually a whole sermon on, uh, but they sent it in an email, and I was you know, reluctant to watch it, you know, as I 
you never know what you're going to waste your time on. And but I watched it, and it was actually fantastic. And this this uh, pastor was talking about a situation he was going through in the ministry, and and that in the middle that God led His church to build a brand new sanctuary in 2008. The day they were supposed to get their funding from the bank was the the day that everything hit the news about the lending institutions and the 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 bubble bursting on the on the uh, the home prices and everything else and the the stock market was dropping and everything was falling apart and it was it, that's when he was they were supposed to get funding the bank came back to them and said sorry we can't do it and God told him keep moving forward keep doing and he was saying I mean you know you put things into perspective this is a huge church in Texas the 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 building they were building it was a new worship center was a hundred million dollars wow. to build the to build the this this facility and he said he had just came from the bank and the bank said you don't get the money until you come up with 20 million more dollars we won't loan you anything <laughs> Well, he said, I didn't have $20 million. Yeah. They had already... How many people do? <laughs> they had already put millions of dollars into the project to even get to that point. You know, the drawings, the preparing the land and getting the permits and doing all that stuff. He said they had already put in all the money they had. They had had a groundbreaking ceremony on Sunday. And so, you know, in front of the whole congregation, he goes, we're starting forward. You know, here we go. And on Monday, the bank said... Uh-uh. you're not getting the money until you get another $20 million. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? And he kept praying about it, and God said, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. He dealt. He had to deal with this situation. He was having some trouble within the church, and at first he wasn't dealing with it. And God got a hold of him and said, you deal with this. If you don't deal with this, you're never going to get out of this situation. So he had to deal with that situation first. And the moment he dealt, he dealt with it, he got a phone call. And he picked up the phone, and it was one of his, his church members. And his church member said, Pastor, is there? do you have all the money you need to start the project? And he goes, you know, I had to tell him, no, because no, I don't have all the money. He says, but I wasn't about to tell him I need $20 million. You know, I mean, So he says, well, no, I, I don't have all the money to start. And the, and the guy goes, you know, he says, my wife and I have been talking about it. We've been praying about it, and we feel like we're supposed to give you $20 million to start the project. Wow. I mean, hello. You know, exactly what he needed the whole nine yards. Can God do anything? Absolutely. God can do absolutely anything. Well, what if he knew they actually had, were that wealthy or had access to that sort of money? He didn't. Did he say, because you watched it too, did he say? He didn't that, say, but it wasn't a gift. It was a loan. The but, church but was going to pay him back. But he had it. Yes. And it was, uh, you know, he didn't say if it was a no interest loan or a best He never a, said if he knew that this family was that wealthy or not. Yeah. That made us a lot of curiosity. Yeah. So, can God do anything? God can do anything, you know. And so, here's the situation: they're they're, they're in captivity. They're they're in duress. They're, they're you know they're she has been brought in as as a concubine. Basically, she's been she's been pressed into service as in into the into the uh, the king's harem, and her uncle has been told has told her. Don't tell him anything. Don't tell him who you are. Don't tell him what you know what nationality you are. 
um, you know, not that you know we're advocating being secret agents, uh, secret agent Christians, but at the same time, if if God gives you wisdom to, to not say something, you don't say it. You you, you don't go in that direction. So, um, she uh, Esther had an uncle. His name was Mordecai. Mordecai uh, was a an official. He was a uh, an official in the king's court. Um, he had some influence. He had um, access to the king's court, and so he was able to check up on her on a regular basis. And um, he was a scribe, if I'm correct. Right? Yeah, I believe he was a scribe. So, at this point. Uh, she is in, and she and she has had favor with both the king and with the eunuchs. The eunuchs were the ones who took care of the harem and oversaw them and protected them. I mean, the eunuchs were that were there to to protect and to make sure that the that the harem wasn't messed with, obviously. And so they, uh, she was having favor with them. And so um, the most important thing that we can see uh, it, up to this point so far is that this remarkable course of events was not an accident. It wasn't just by luck or even good fortune. You know, when God is operating in your life or when we allow God to operate in our life, when things happen to us, it isn't by luck. It isn't by chance. Uh, it isn't by good fortune. It's on purpose. God is, is purposely doing things in your life. Now, not everything that happens in your life during that time is God, because we also, you know, as we know um, from the sermon I preached two weeks ago, that or three weeks ago now, because two weeks ago something else happened, that there is a there is another kingdom, there is a force of darkness that's trying to destroy what God's doing, and so not everything that happens in our life, and then people can make that mistake where they're going through their life and they're and they're seeking after God and they're asking God what you know what's going on here, what what can I or what am I supposed to do when we're being obedient to him? And then, all of a sudden, something will happen. A bad thing. Something bad will happen in their lives. And immediately, one of, one of the possibilities that people can think is, well, God did that. You know, God does everything. He's, God is sovereign. God is, is, you know, he knows what's going to happen, and he, he's planned all these things, even the good things and the bad. Well, we know that's not true. John 10.10 says that uh, Jesus said the the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But he says, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. When when Adam and Eve, we go all the way back to the beginning, when Adam and Eve listened to Satan instead of listening to God, they opened the door for Satan to be the ruler of this world. And so he had, it gave him the authority to mess with people and to and to influence the the creation even um, to 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 hamper God's plan for life on this earth and so for thousands of years Satan has tried has taken as much leverage or as much uh, leeway as he possibly can to affect God's creation trying to destroy God's creation. So in our lives, Jesus came to give us life and more life more abundantly. 
when we seek after him, he's actually then able to, to help us navigate, the Holy Spirit is, navigate through this life to bring about good, to bring about blessing into the creation, other people's lives, our life, so on and so forth. And so we're going through this life and we're navigating through it. But And, and good things happen to us because we make right decisions based on how God leads us. Um, there, he blesses us. He, he brings blessing into our lives, so on and so forth. But then certain things still happen. So, you know, think bad things can still happen, but it doesn't mean God brought it into our life. God didn't lead us into this uh, this this suffering that we're happening. Satan does that all by himself. The world is full of suffering, but it's not God's fault. It's really Adam's fault, and everybody's going to chew him out when we all see him. Yeah. What the heck were you thinking? A good uh, kind of examples like when Daniel's praying, and uh, the adversary uh, hampered. It took twenty days to get the answer to his prayer. Because mm-hmm. uh, was it the Michael or Gabriel that was coming? And uh, Lucifer Michael. was Michael. Michael, yeah, stopped him for twenty days, fighting with him. Mm-hmm. So, that kind of goes along with what you're saying. Yep. So, so there's there are there is this war that's going on, and bad things do happen. They are in bondage. You know, yes, God allowed that to happen because they had sinned. But, but you can also argue that that because they sinned, they opened themselves up for Satan to be able to do that. God took His hand of blessing off of them, allowed them to be taken taken into bondage, so on and so forth. Esther being being kidnapped, you know, basically and forced into being in a harem. I'm sure that wasn't her plan. That wasn't what she wanted to do. Yet, through those things, and here's the dividing point that, that I think is the most important point. In those situations, in those bad, horrible, terrible situations, God can still bring about good. He doesn't cause those bad things to happen so that we'll learn something and something good will happen. Because we're listening to him, because we're following him, when bad things happen, he can still turn them around for good. And that's exactly what he's going to do here. His plan is going to get completely fulfilled. She was um, 14 years old, wasn't she? Probably. You know, I don't know. Did I, I haven't seen anything in the things I've been studying, but it, yeah, could very, very possibly could be 12, 14, 16. Yeah. You know, in that age. I can't even imagine. So, all right. So, verse 19. We are in chapter... Which one? Two. 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 Yeah, there we go. We've got a long ways to go. Chapter 2, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as he had done when he was bringing her up. Um, this position indicates that Mordecai was associated with the decision makers and the men of the influence of the kingdom. He had influence. You couldn't sit there. You couldn't be in that place without being uh, a, one of the leaders. And so, um, and we see that uh, Daniel had a very high place. Had a very high place, and he was one of the Jewish. Uh, um, leaders. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were officials. They were people of influence. And so um, there were many Jews, and that's exactly when when the Persians or any, really any uh, um, conqueror, even the Romans did this, when, when they would 
conquer a territory, when they would when they would take over a country, beat a country at war, they wouldn't just then immediately put them into slavery. Some of them, and they actually assimilated into their leadership. The idea was assimilation rather than domination. They would use domination to force assimilation, but they uh, um, that's exactly what was happening here. They brought their brightest and smartest and, and, and able into the leadership roles to make them a part uh, make them a part of the system to make them make them a part of the system and that way people who are not leaders would look and go oh well there's you know there's so and so I mean he's one of their leaders we'll have to let's follow him and if if they have places of influence they will influence the other people in the kingdom and pretty soon there's there's really no telling who they are and that's the what that's the thing with with Esther, she doesn't say who she is. She doesn't say where she comes from. They didn't know. There was so many countries, so many cultures, so many different people that had been assimilated into the into this uh, thing. They had lost track of who people were. But she knew who she was. Well, at that time in history, the Persian Empire was the largest in the world. Yeah, yeah. And it, it encompassed all of the what we know know right now as the Middle East, down into Turkey and into India mm-hmm. as well. Yep, and even at, into Africa also. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there was people from all colors, all nationalities, all all tongues, but they were being assimilated into one gigantic uh, kingdom. And so it was possible that she, you know, they didn't know who she was. They they didn't know where she had come from or any of those things. Um. Some people have thought that the book of Esther carries this idea of concealment too far. Uh, This book has been criticized because it does not mention the name of God, as we said last week. Um, But the idea that that she hid out, you know, there are times when you don't say anything. You know, there's times Jesus didn't reveal who he was until the very end, even to his disciples. I mean, he, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but I've thought this many times. Why didn't just Why didn't Jesus just come out and just tell them, "Here's what's going on, here's who I am," and prove it? He could have proved it because it isn't about absolute, you know, uh, disclosure of everything. It's about faith. It's about people being hungry enough and and interested enough, humbling themselves to go, God, I want to find you. I want to seek you. I want to know who you are. And so, so. You know, he, he, Jesus didn't come and just reveal himself. Um, Paul, I think Paul even says that he doesn't he doesn't tell everybody everything. You know, it's not good to tell everybody everything. And in this case, it was a very dangerous situation. You, you did not know who you, who were your allies because it's a kingdom, uh, a, a continually changing dynamics. You need you don't know. Mordecai knew it better of anybody because he was in that mix. He said, "Don't tell them who you are. Just go through this. If they, you know, God, God has a place for this. You know, God's going to work this out. Um, roll with it, and don't push. Don't don't push any buttons before they have to be pushed." So, do, 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 do. did I share this last? Some say that the name of God was left out of Esther because it, it's used in the in the festival surrounding Purim. Did I talk about that? Okay. All right, so we're beyond that point. Perhaps uh, also Esther does not contain the name of God because it is it was under it was written under Persian rule, 
and it was distributed through the Persian Empire. And so um, there may have been a desire to not make it only a religious text. They wanted to tell the story everywhere. And if they would have talked about Yahweh, if they would have talked about the God of Israel, some people might have discarded it, and they wanted it as a historical commemoration of what had happened as well as as a commemoration of what God had done. But instead of, so that it would be more widely read, they, they, that is a theory. They don't know that for sure. So most likely Esther does not have the name of God because it shows how God works behind the scenes. God is always active in Esther, even though it's behind the scenes, because even though his name isn't mentioned. And we know that because um, Esther, when it came down to it, when she, when, it, when she had to go before the king and she knew this was the day she had to, to make the declaration, she asked everybody to fast and pray before doing it. And the only reason you your fast and pray is you're humbling yourself before God. You don't do it just because he had, you know, everybody, starve yourselves for a few days, folks, we'll, and then I'm going to go do this. So God was definitely involved between all, in, in the middle of all this. Verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana, that's a great name. I've always wanted to name an animal that. One of, like, one of the animals, one of our gophers, or not gophers, what do we have? Gerbils. Gerbils. That would have been great to name him, Bigthana. Mm-hmm. And Teresh, two of the king's official officers who guarded, I'm sorry, I have a thought in my head, and if I don't say it, I'm not, I'll never get past any of this. I used to have a cat that had six claws on each front paw and so um, it was a mutation of some sort but I named it Goliath because Goliath's brother had six fingers on each hand did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. so I, I sorry it was just there and I couldn't get past it so it's Goliath didn't though? Goliath didn't well, it never said that he did or didn't but his brother had six fingers so then why'd you name it Goliath? why'd you name it Goliath's brother? because it doesn't say what the Goliath's brother's name was <laughs> And Goliath, and Goliath's brother d- just didn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> Besides, how you get past a name like Goliath? Yeah, be, you know? exactly. Was it a girl cat? You know, I doubt it. Because <laughs> I don't think I would have named it Goliath. Stop it. <laughs> Did you name a, an animal, a girl, a boy's name? She didn't know the deck twice. Oh. <laughs> Moving right along. You can say it's her name. Oh, Ebony became Ebenezer. Okay. I would just like to say the second time it happened when I was an adult, everything was already snipped and tucked before I got the cat, and so there wasn't anything to compare to. I'm I'm moving right along. Greg, you can strike this from the audio. So. All right. During the time of Mordecai was sitting at the gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the... Annals in the, um, sorry, in the presence of the king. So Mordecai's attitude wasn't, uh, I'm a Jewish man in exile under a pagan king, so I do not care if he's killed. Instead, he protects the king. He does his job. 
um, he fulfills his duty as um, the king's doorman, basically. Well, in the end, this is what helped him get the street cred with the king, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and that's that's amazing. You know, it's it's very appropriate, very applicable to our lives. You know, not um, not all of the the uh, bosses that I had in my life were godly men. Most of them weren't. Uh, most of the companies that I worked for before coming here or before working in churches were not godly places of, 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 of work. And yet God expects us to honor those people and to, and to, and to work our hardest for them and be honest and, and, and help them succeed. And I literally saw that. I saw that so many times. Um, there was a, when I was working for Land O'Lakes, uh, was working in the Land Lakes plant and in making hot dogs in Elberly, Minnesota. And uh, one day the the boss came to me and he says, "Hey, this is the guy who usually makes the roast beef, the uh, the Schweigert Schweigert roast beef. Everybody, anybody ever had Schweigert roast beef? Slice the whole thing. He says the guy who makes the Schweigert roast beef just got or just quit the jo- quit his job or whatever. He says I need somebody new. He says, come here, I want to teach you how to do this.'" So they, they took me over, started, and I started making Schweigert roast beef. So a couple days a week, every week, I'm the, I was the only person during that four-year, three-year period, four-year period of time that made Schweigert roast beef. I was the only one in America who made Schweigert roast beef, and I made it all by hand. You have to you take all the meat, you have to get it to the right temperature, and then you have to stuff it in these cans with a bunch of mixes and the whole thing. As I was doing that job, and I, and I had just rededicated my life to the Lord. And I was reading things about how God would bless you and this and that. I started praying dear, while I was working. So I'd be working, making shui, or making this roast beef. I was praying. I was seeking God, the whole thing. And one day the Lord says, stop doing it that way. Do it this way. And he would show me how to do something a little bit different. Then he would show me how to do something else a little bit different. And then he says, now wait 15 minutes. So I would step away and I would, I would take a break during that time. And over a period of months, I, I took the process that they gave me and I tweaked it, where we were having thirty to forty percent waste because it's a, it's a gelatin based, and there was a the cans that they used, and when they would go to cut it after it was cooled and everything was processed, there would be thirty to forty percent waste. And in the few months that I that I was working on it and praying about how to do it, the Lord showed me how to get it down to ten percent waste which is a significant amount of, of savings for the company, to the point where the main office came in and said, what are you doing? Well, actually, one individual was sent to find out what I was doing. And I said, well, I've changed the process a bit. You know? And I said, I said, why? Are you not happy? He said, no. He said, we're extremely happy. He says, because of, the, of the how much is being saved. And he says, okay, show me how you do this. And so I took him step by step, and it was all the steps that the Lord had showed me during that time on how to, how to save the, the, the process, how to fix the process, and completely revolutionized how this product was made. I mean, and I didn't have a degree. I didn't have, I didn't, all I know is I listened to God, and he told me how to do each step. Well, funny thing was I got the, the, the company newsletter about three months later and this guy was getting an award at a banquet for how he had saved the company and how he had changed this process and the whole thing. You got no credit. I got no credit. And I said, I'm looking at it. I just, 
I wanted to be mad. I did. I really wanted to be mad. And the Holy Spirit said, let it go. Just let it go. Sow it. Sow it into the company. Just let it go. And I did. So I just let it go and never, you know, now that I haven't thought about it in nearly 30 years. So, huh? Facebook. I'll put it on my Facebook. <laughs> but, you know. You're welcome, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but praise God, God has still blessed my life. You know, so even in the middle of it, so even though you don't get the credit, maybe you know you're not you're not working for a godly boss because that guy wasn't godly, obviously, because he, he took all the credit himself. You, God will still bless you. He still works in your life, and so, um, so we see that. He, but so Mordecai fulfills his job, even though it wasn't for his best friend. It was for, and and every and as history says. That Xerxes was a violent man. He was a violent, cruel uh, um, tyrant. I mean, he was a he was a not a nice guy. And yet Mordecai fulfills his job. So both men were killed. Um, the the some versions call it they were hung on the gallows because you'll, you'll also there's some of your versions will say when we get to Haman that he was hung on a gallows that he prepared a gallows. The, the form of execution in those days in Persia was impalement. And so the, the, um, when it talks about that, the, it literally, in, in the notes that I have here, it says that the, it literally means that he's hung on a tree. And it's the same phraseology as when, in, when, when they're talking about Jesus being hung on a tree. Jesus wasn't impaled. But over the years, the Romans modified it to be crucifixion rather than impalement. All right. So um, the threat of assassination was real. Uh, Xerxes eventually was murdered by his prime minister, um, but not this time. Not this. Uh, <clears throat> not this opportunity. Um, was Mordecai still there? Yes, Mordecai was still there. He was. When he got assassinated? Oh, I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that. No, not sure. Um, if anybody wants to read exactly how they do an impalement, I have the notes. <laughs> I don't think we want to read it. No, no, no. Pretty gory? It's pretty gory. So. That's not uh, hanging on a tree then. Well, they hung him. More than that? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Literally, they built they built a scaffold no, up, no, no, and they had the person no stand above no the pointed no stick. No it's a no tall pointed no stick. No <laughs> no Are they still hanging then too, though? Or oh, they would hang there. Yes. No, no, no. no. Yeah, we will. Uh, you can read it. You can read it later. And they'll post it on Facebook. But damn. <laughs> Dracula too, because he was a master in it also. Yes. Vladimir Vlad Dracula. Yeah. All right, chapter three. So after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamamadetha. Actually, I think I just said that right by accident. Hamamadetha, <laughs> the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt, bef- knelt, knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Um, 
Haman was an ungodly man, but God allowed him to be uh, promoted because the end of the story, God fulfills through this series of events, fulfills a prophecy that had been hundreds of years before. Um, it was a, it was well, we'll talk about it when we get there. But there was a, um, Haman was the son of Hamemetatha, the Agagite. Haman was a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. So when he was also then, when, when Xerxes was taking over all this territory, he was somebody else who was taken into captivity during that time because he was an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were from the desert region before you get to Jordan. They were on the, the desert side, the Sinai side of the Jordan on the other side of Israel. And as, as Israel was being led through the desert, they wanted to pass through the land of the Amalekites. And <clears throat> the Amalekites said, no, we won't let you do it. And at that time, a, a curse was pronounced over them as a people. And it was fulfilled in this story. In, the, in this story, we'll get to that point at the end. So the Amalekites, the people who were Israel's sworn enemy for generations. And if you want to find that story of where this all happens, it's in Exodus chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. That's where this, that, that story is found. I'm sorry, can you say that one more? Exodus chapter 17, 14 through 16. I thought it was under King Saul that who was it? Because Saul, okay, Spaniel told Saul to um, completely annihilate. If we're talking about the same thing, I don't believe so because it's in Exodus. Let's go to Exodus 17 real quick before we. What the verses? 14 through 16. Exodus 17. That's the notes I have. Exodus 17. 14 through 16. Okay. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. <clears throat> Make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up in the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war, war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about the actual battle. Oh, no. Okay, for you. No, I was wrong. <clears throat> Should have never doubted that. You know, that's okay. They wouldn't let him go through their time. They wouldn't let him go through. Yep. <clears throat> and there actually was a war. There was actually a battle. Um, but this was the... That was the, the prophecy. And so... Somebody who is keeping track of those kinds of things, it's numbers, and I'm not a good number guy. Um, how many hundreds of years would have passed from from that prophecy to the Esther story? It's got to be at least 500 years, if not more, 600, if not 1,000. It may be, it's a number of years, a large number of years. All right. So, verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, the reason he wouldn't comply was they were sworn enemies, and he would not humble himself 
against uh, against the or to that man to that people. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. So yeah, great friends. You know, how come you won't bow down? Come on, buddy, bow down. Everybody, everybody else is bowing down. And then he, when he wouldn't, all right, hey, Haman, how come, you know, are you going to let this happen? Are you going to let him get by with this? Nice friends. There does not seem to be a biblical command against bowing or paying homage to a political leader as a sign of respect. Uh, rather, Mordecai must know something about this man, Haman, which persuades him that Haman is unworthy of such an honor perhaps simply his ancestry so it's it's it could be just as just something itself you know as as that huey a a theologian said no self-respecting benjamite would bow before a descendant of the ancient amalekite enemy of the jews now aren't the amalekites the ones who sacrificed their children in the fire Mm mm-hmm yeah and there were there were actually bunches of different different people did but amalekites were one of them yeah is there a chance that the decree um, would have been received as worship? Because that would, I mean, if he's a Jew, that would be a, a stopping point for him there. I would think that that's possible. Yep. Absolutely. It doesn't specifically say that, but it, you know, it, it could be, it doesn't really specifically say anything. It just said he wouldn't do it. Yep. So they ask, why do, why do you transgress the king's command? We do not read of a specific command from King Xerxes all, that all had to bow before Haman. But perhaps it was implied or it was there and just wasn't recorded. But So they, they, they say, why are you defying this specific command? Um, but we don't see that anywhere in the word. Uh, the wounded pride of Haman drives him to seek retribution against not only Mordecai and his people, or not only Mordecai, but also his people. And so you can see this this dislike or even hatred goes both ways. Um, because Mordecai would not bow, and because of Haman's new place, his new um, his new standing with the king, you know, it is an opportunity for him to wipe out the Jews. He he can now do that, which for his side of the feud would be a win also. So, <clears throat> it is definitely a dangerous situation. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or, or pay him honor, he was enraged. You have, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing, of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. If you notice, though, that, you know, Throughout history, the devil has always tried to destroy all the Jews. It wasn't just Hitler. Xerxes tried to do it. Stalin tried to do it. I mean, just throughout history, people have tried to wipe out, um, you know, even in our own country, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, they don't like blacks or Jews, you know, or any ethnic. But there's, there's specifically, the Jews are always put into this lump of people we need to eradicate, we need to get rid of. Um, and so, you know, it, it is a pattern. It is, it is Satan trying to destroy the plan of God. And the Jews are always in the middle of it. Which brings me to, have you ever seen the movie Defiance? 
about the Belarusian Jews who uh, took to the took to the woods during World War II when the when the Russians were trying to or when the, the Nazis were trying to exterminate them. Was that where it was a couple of brothers that led? Yeah, the the the, yeah. Yeah, was the Belsky yeah. brothers was yeah. it, okay. this, the movie was it was very recent. In the middle of it, in the middle of it, they're living out in the woods and they're they had just suffered an attack and there's people that are dying of different things and uh, there's a there's a, uh, a rabbi who's praying and it's to me it's the most amazing part of the whole movie. There's amazing parts in the whole movie, but this this one line where he goes. You know, oh Lord, why have you blessed us with so much suffering? He says, pick another people. <laughs> just, just pick another people. And I just thought, wow, that is that is so deep. Uh, just an amazing line. All right. Haman apparently did not notice at first uh, Mordecai's resistance. Um, it had been, it had to be pointed out to him. Haman was ticked off. He was extremely proud and in, apparently an insecure man. He could only consider him a success if everyone else thought he was a success. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom. Haman's anger led him to take out his wrath upon all the Jews in the kingdom. The problem with Haman exposed his basic hatred of all Jews. But in this moment... It, it is a here is a um, characteristic of how Satan works. Satan always overplays his hand. Satan always goes too far. If if Haman, who was obviously influenced by evil Satan, whatever you want, however you want to call it, if all he would have done was taken out Mordecai. None of this. We would. I don't think we'd ever, ever hear, ever, ever heard about this. But he he overplayed his hand. He Satan overplays it because Haman got, gets angry and wants to kill all the Jews. And he and he's about to. We'll get theoretically. We'll get there tonight, where he goes before the king and has the king. He tricks the king into making an edict to kill all of the Jews. Make it possible for him to kill all of the Jews. And by doing that. God then has the opportunity to save the Jews and and then to eradicate the Amalekites because that's what ends up happening is uh, the exact opposite happens instead of the and, and from that day forward that was the end of the Amalekites we never hear about them again in history and there was actually a period of time when people thought that the Bible was was untrue that it was inaccurate because there was no record of the Amalekites and they for for years they said, see, you know, there's no proof of the Amalekites ever existing, you know, and there's so much written about them in the Bible. Apparently, it's not true. Well, historically or 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 uh, um, archaeologically, there was no, you know. So when you read the the prophecy that says they will be blotted out, they will be blotted out of, you know, of 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 the earth. They literally were, and then people thought, well, there's no Amalekites. We've never seen any reference to the Amalekites. Until they found the capital city of the Amalekites, they dug far enough in, in an excavation where they hit the, the, the capital city of the Amalekites with the, the royal library with all of the history, where, well, where all the, the history was written, and it lined up, all, it dates-wise, lined up with the Bible. That one archaeological find 
Um, I mean, was categorically one of the greatest finds because it 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 solidified that the Old Testament is accurate, even when people didn't believe it was accurate. And so um, we find this, out this is the time Esther is the time in history where they were eradicated yes, completely. Yes, this this exact story. Yep, huh. because of this story, and we'll get to that at the end of at the end of it. Okay, so we, we'll, you ever read the end of the book before you read the finish reading the front? The end of the book. No? No. You never do that? <laughs> no. Why does that not surprise me in the least? <laughs> um, what happens is that when Esther finds all this out and, and, and exposes it to the king, he says, I'll do anything for you. She goes, let my people fight against them. And so he actually arms the Jews and goes out and we're... Where because well we'll get to that part too I don't want to spoil that part, but what was supposed to happen was completely turned against the Amalekites and the Amalekites were wiped out rather than the Jews. So, God is amazing, but Satan always overplays his hand. He always he takes it too far. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought of this. See, I've got I've got nothing to do all day except think of all these really crazy uh, scenarios and and video games and golf. Yes, um, but have you ever thought? Satan, all he had to do was leave Jesus alone. <clears throat> he didn't have to do anything. If he would have left Jesus alone and not caused the, caused the people to, to, to kill Jesus, he would have never died for our sins. And he would have won. But he can't do that. He can't do that. He, he always takes it too far. And because he took it too far, he completely played into the hands of God. I mean, it's amazing. So, how about Holocaust? How did he play that too far? How did he play that too far? We got Israel out of it, the country of Israel. Well, yeah, Israel began because of you know because of of the world sediment there, not sediment uh, sentiment that you know we need to give have a place for them to go mainly because they didn't want them in their own country. So let's get them out. Of, let's give them their own country back. They didn't think they would survive. But, They're already there to begin with since uh, Balfour or whatever. There we go ahead. Yep. All right. So, verse seven. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the month, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the um, the month of Adar. Um, just so you, uh, in reference, as long as it mentioned it here, I'm going to. Me- oh, that's got my next sentence. I'm going to. Me- I'm going to explain that. This was the Persian word for lot. Per. Um, uh, it was a lot that was cast to, to choose different things, and that's where they they believe they get the name Purim, the the festival of Purim, the Jewish festival, is because of the the the, the lot was cast, the the die was cast, and. God won. That that's the the idea. But that's not what ha- what was happening here. Was Xerxes allowed allowed Haman to select a day in a month to um, to have a, a, a feast, to have a an, a, a a thing, until it fell on the twelfth month. Since this took place in the first month, the casting of the lot determined that the Jews would not be attacked and massacred for at least eleven months. This proves the truth of Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
the long delay between the first month and the and the month of the massacre against the Jewish people was ordained by God. And so, um, see, you can see how God takes whatever the situation is and still ordains it, still moves it forward for his glory. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, this is, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Remember, the whole idea is to integrate. You, you, uh, you assimilate. Uh, you assimilate everyone into um, the uh, into the collective. Sorry, I, sl- I, I tried not to slide over into it all night long. I've I've been bumping up against it. If you if you're Star Trek fans, the uh, resistance is futile. But that was the whole idea. They wanted you to be assimilated into the culture and make it one culture, and so by the Jews, because they're following their law, they are keeping themselves separate. What ticks off the world more now, today, than anything? That Christians continue to be separate. We, we, we continue to, to say, no, we believe in one God. We believe in a God. We believe that God is in control. We believe that, that God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, if you want to start a stir, tell somebody who's not a Christian, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. What kind of a freak are you? You know. I kind of wonder if that wasn't part of the reason that Mordecai um, cautioned us about revealing that. Because if you if you look at the number of times the Jews had been taken over by other kingdoms and everybody else got assimilated and they resisted assimilation and they did it over and over and over again. And I, I think they probably built up a reputation for themselves as mm-hmm. they're not going to just become a dilution into the... Being stubborn and stiff-necked. And we see that with uh, Daniel. We see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see that with all these people that say, no, we're not going to do it that way. And so... uh, I'll get back in my soapbox. That's where I see the problem with the church today. The church today is not separate. As a whole. I'm not saying us... Although I, I think we need to look at us, we need to we need to examine ourselves. That's eventually where I'm getting to with this sermon series on Sundays. Is that we live in a world where we are expected to assimilate, and in some very small ways and some very large ways. The problem is the church as a whole has completely acquiesced <clears throat> to the pressure. And we must stop. We must separate ourselves. And I know people are going to think we're freaks. They already do. They already think we're already freaky enough. But we're going to look very different than the world. But we must do it. If we don't do it, then we lose our ability to, 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 show, to show by the word of God, here is the difference. Here is the difference. Because if we look like the world, if we think like the world... Um, you know, and I want to be really careful because people imagine, you know, immediately jump from, you know, we have to be separated. Well, you know, whole groups of people in, in history have done that and, and they, you know, um, well, you can't look like the world, which means you can't uh, dress like the world. You can't have your hair like the world. You can't drive. You can't dance. You can't dance. You can't go to movies. You can't. And they start making up rules. That's not what we're talking about. Or what, what, what biblically, when it says that we're not supposed to, I mean, they, they, it does get that way, but then all the laws come out. You know, all the, 
You're doing this, this, and this. What it's what we need to do is to not think like the world. That when we come up against a situation, our first answer is, okay, well, this is the way everybody's doing it. I'm going to do it this way. No, we need to say, what's the Bible say? What does God say? How do we how do we approach this problem? How do we approach this situation? And <clears throat> when you look at the laws that God commanded versus the laws that everybody thinks about, which is the rabbinical laws, right. they're very different. Extremely different. And they, they were trying to clarify it. They were trying to, to codify it. They were trying to... <clears throat> and in doing that, they made it the law. Yeah. Whereas it's, it wasn't supposed to be. So you take this all the way... So that, so here we're starting down here with Christianity. Here they're told she's told to be separate. Here the, the people that are in Babylon will not assimilate into that culture fully. Mordecai saved the king. So not 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 assimilating into the into the culture doesn't mean that you're not a part of the culture. Is that here's that's where this this tricky part comes into into play is somebody might say, well, I, I'm not going to be a part of the culture, so let the king die. What's that? What's it to me? No. We still have there, there's still a, a line where we honor the king. We honor those in ruling over us, and so on and so forth. But Shadrach, or Daniel and his associates didn't eat the king's food, which was a mandate. It was mandated that he ate the, that they eat the king's food, <clears throat> but they wouldn't do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow before the the, the idol. Uh, others, Daniel, wouldn't stop praying to God. Um, <clears throat> and the thing is, he could have prayed with the window shut. If you remember that story, we'll get to those stories, and you know, as we keep going through the Old Testament. So there's all these examples where they drew the line. We'll we'll work within the kingdom, but we're drawing the line here. We have to know where to draw the line. We have to know that when when God says that's it, don't go any further. That we draw that line deep and we draw it hard and we will not cross it. Because you jump all the way to the end, to Revelation, and it says there will be a day when you will be told you either take this mark or you don't buy and sell. And God says, in the Word of God says, do not take the mark. If you take the mark, you're lost. Okay, Will we will we be in such a mindset or in a, in such a constitution where we will not cross that line? Because I can think of all kinds of reasons why we could why we could talk ourselves into well that doesn't really really mean that. I've already had a pastor tell me. He says he goes John, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. He says. He says, nothing here, that, that's something completely different. You know, theologians have completely screwed that up. He says, if, if they come with a chip and they want to implant a chip in me, I'll be the first one in line. This is a pastor saying this. And I went, you are wrong. I said, I can't say it any more clearly. You are wrong. And he got mad at me. And I said, I don't care if you get mad at me. Here's, there has to be a line. And if it's talking about you can't buy or sell without this mark, I don't care. I don't care if it's a tattoo. I don't care if it's a, a scribbling with a pen. I ain't doing it. You know, if they want to put it on my hand or my forehead, 
it's a rig, big red flag for me day. But that's that's where we have to get to as a, as a kingdom. So. I hadn't thought of it this way until just a few minutes ago, um, but the idea of will or will, or will not the church acquiesce in the culture, I think that it's, it's important to look at that Jesus said that um, when he was talking to Peter, he said, on this rock I will establish my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there will be a preservation of the church. It's, it's, it's really more a question of do we want to be part of the church that is faithful at the end or do we want to be part of the church that's lukewarm or fallen away that, that isn't a part of what, what God's really doing in a, in a time that's, that's near the end. And so I, I think that, I mean, it... It's, it's kind of tempting for people to entertain the thought of, well, we'd be more inclusive if we just kind of be more like everybody else and we, um, we're more accepting. But um, it's, not, it's not what we're supposed to do. It's not in the game plan. That's not what God wants for, for the church. Obviously, we're supposed to be as inviting as, as possible um, that, that uh, there's no exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the sense of not letting people take part in what mm-hmm. we're, we're about, but uh, it was never part of God's game plan, and you can see that um, in the Word pretty clearly. Yep. That we would let me let me take one of the the hottest button issues of our day right now. That's affecting the world. It's affecting the church. It's affecting us as individuals. And, and I want and, and, let, and let me put it in this light of, of drawing that line and not crossing it. Um, but also explaining or talking about it in the same heart that a Christian is supposed to have. Because most people, as soon as you draw this line in this cultural issue right now, you are black and, and it's black and white. There is no gray area in the middle. And so you know, of where you stand. And it's, it's, it is a, it's, it's, it's very emotionally charged. Um, exactly. Homosexuality. I've been thinking about that for the last five minutes. Homosexuality. Okay. So it is a, it is a clear mandate according to the word of God that homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin. Okay. So if as a church, we take that stand which we do, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering, I'll just say it right up front. Homosexuality is a sin. It is an abomination to God. It is wrong. The Bible says that anyone who practices homosexuality is will not see heaven. They will not see heaven. And it, it cannot be any clearer. Now, within that... <clears throat> I have friends who are homosexual. Key word is practice. Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And, and if a man lusts in his heart, he's done. He's done it. So, it, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to split that hair today, right now, because I want to. I want to focus on this part. Is that homosexuality is a sin? Now, I have friends. Relatives. Do we have relatives? Yeah. Well, long distance relatives who are homosexual. And when I spend time with them, 
I love on them. They're my friends. They're my family. They're, they're people that I'm associated with. And I treat them with respect. I treat them with honor. I love them. I care about them. And not just as a mark that I'm trying to win them into Christ. I want, I'm there for them. They've been my friends for years and so on and so forth. But they also, know, you know, if, if it ever came down to where they say, well, what do you think about my lifestyle? I will be very honest with them. But I still love them. Can, can someone who is homosexual come to our church? Absolutely. Please come. We'd love to have you come. You know, without, we, we, we obviously, obviously, we've never announced it. We've had many homosexuals who have come to this church over the years. But we, and so we don't exclude people from being here and being a part of who we are. God loves them. He loves them. Just like he loves thieves and adulterers and liars and he loves them but there's also a line that says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven and and if we if we start moving that line to well he loves them so he'd never send them to hell wrong if i'm a liar the bible says he's going to send that, that i'm going to choose to to go to hell I, I choose to not let go of my sin i'm going to be punished for it but that doesn't change the fact that we love them. Can they come here? Can they, you know, can, will we accept them? And I had a, I had a young man one time when I when I kind of talked along this line, who who came up to me after church and he goes, "Can I take you out for lunch?" He's, "I got some questions for you." And I said, "Sure, great." And he uh, and he at the time he had just come off the mission field. He was a he was a a church planter for Baptist churches. Um, I just I just ran into somebody who knows him. I hadn't heard about him in ten years. But he, he was a Baptist church planter in the southwest of, of America and so on and so forth. He took me out to lunch and he goes, i got to ask you about your sermon. He says, are you saying that homosexuality is a sin? And I said, yes. <laughs> I thought I made that pretty clear on, on Sunday. He goes, I disagree with you. He says, I've known a lot of homosexual people and they're wonderful people. God would never send them to hell. And I said, here's the deal, bud. I said, they are wonderful people. I mean, one of our friends, when, when we worked at a, at a, before we were in the ministry, when we were in college, uh, a man befriended Deb. Uh, it was a, a cook at a, at, a, at a camp that we worked at. And he was very homosexual. Had been a Christian, walked away from God, was into homosexuality. And he was, he was a jerk to everybody else, but he absolutely loved Deb. <laughs> For whatever reason, they were just, you know, he just, he would search her out and he would have long, she'd come home and go, man, he told me about this. He told me, you know, just about long conversations about what, what had actually driven him away from Christianity. And, you know, he was an awesome guy. We loved him. He died of AIDS. He died from complication of AIDS. And so you have this, your heart just, oh, just pours out to him. But the truth is, the Bible says, if you are in this lifestyle, if, if, if you are in this sin, you do not go to heaven. And, it, and it's not my choice. I, I didn't make that rule up. I didn't, I didn't write that gospel. And so, but but we, and what happens, though, is you know, we have whole denominations that are going, oh, no, that's not what God said. That's not what he meant. How can these homosexual pastors, how do they miss the mark? How do they not see that same scripture? 
because they're 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 blurring the line. They they ha- if they don't agree with what it says, they have to blur the line somehow because they, you know, they have to acquiesce. There's preachers out there that are homosexual that talk about different stories in the Bible. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed because of homosexuality. It was destroyed because of inhospitality. And so then they'll, you know, really talk, you know, focus on that aspect of the story and just kind of change the meaning of it. And you can listen on YouTube. There's a bunch of different sermons that you can listen to and you listen to it, and it's like, wow. They believe. John, where he's laying his head on Christ. Right. During the dinner, they talk about. Yeah. No, yeah. Jonathan and David, they, they talk about them as being a homosexual couple. So they'll take, you know, all different parts Which of Which it doesn't say at all. It says that, that they loved each other, but, you know, I mean, I love Jason. Jonathan, Jason. Justin. Justin. And, and, and now you've got the Republicans. You know, years ago it used to be a Democrat. But well, now you've got the Tea Party and now the moderate Republicans. Yeah, yeah. So now now the moderate Republicans believe homosexuality is probably okay. You know what I'm saying? So they're... Oh. And, and it's because you keep blurring those lines. Mm-hmm. There's, there's two things that I, I think are important here. And uh, one of them that I was thinking about is that when you look at the way the Bible talks about sins, plural, versus sin, singular, there's actually a pretty sharp division in that, um, that Jesus actually paid the price for all the sins, plural, and that would include any one of the ones you can think of that's a, uh, whether it seems like a big sin or a little sin, um, but the one sin in, in the end that is is charged to people's account and they will either be saved or not is the sin of, of believing on Jesus Christ or not and it's the not is the sin and and so there's actually a pretty sharp division between the sins as in all the multiples and the, and the one sin so there's one sin that, that really is the decider in the end but the other thing that I was thinking that's actually consistent with all the verses that I know of where it talks about um, the Someone who's homosexual will not enter the kingdom of heaven, or idolater, or liar, or whatever. All of those things are talking about. It's essentially a statement of identity. And so, if you identify yourself before identifying yourself as a Christian, you identify yourself as a homosexual, or whatever else, Democrat, Republican, whatever you want to put as a label. If you identify yourself primarily as something other than a follower of Christ. Then, then you place that as as above um, being a Christian, and so I think I think that you know all the scripture that, that talks about that these people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's because you can't put something above being a follower of Christ and have that be your identity and let that it doesn't doesn't cut it. You have to have everything else subservient to that identity that's established. And I believe that there will be people saved right up to the last day. Absolutely. And there will be people that are still practicing a lot of the stuff they learned before they were saved and thinking genuinely that they are Christians and those people I believe will be saved. It's not their it's not their the fact they haven't perfectly cleaned up the, every spot and blemish of their life 
that is the judge of whether or not they're, they're going to get saved. It's, it's whether or not they, they genuinely identify with um, being a Christian, first and foremost. And, and we see it through every one of our lives that as we, as we became saved, that over a period of time, there's things that get washed out of us. I mean, there's, there's bad habits that, that diminish and then are no longer a problem. And there's other things that diminish and are no longer a problem. The there's sins still that some so, that are so left. easily beset. <laughs> yeah. 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 And all those sins are just, just as bad as any other one when you count the standard of perfection. I mean, so if, if the ability to sin or not sin was our our standard to hold or not hold, we're in big trouble, and that's why we need Jesus. And, and some denominations will t- go to that level, that that if, if uh, you, you know, lying keeps you out of heaven, if, if you're, you know, being a liar, that <clears throat> if right now I'm saved and, I, and I've asked God for all, you know, to forgive all my sins, that I've, you know, okay, Lord, I've got everything, everything's taken care of, all my, I, I confess all my sins, and I also confess any sin I don't know about, you know, cover anything that I don't know about, okay, whew, I'm saved. There are some denominations that believe that if I lied right now, then I'm no longer saved. Well, that that's tiring. I mean, you can't you can't possibly do that. It just you can never keep up with it. And then to have any kind of assurance that you know, ten years from now, whether I'm going to be in or not, the moment I die, gracious good night. You know, it's legalism. It's legalism. Yeah, exactly. It's yes. And and that's not what we're talking about. So I, I think that's a very good distinction between. You know, where's that line? When, when, you know, where am I saved when I've completely stopped doing some things, or when I'm because I'm I'm identifying that okay, God, you're the deal. You know, you're you're in charge. You're the boss. I completely uh, identify with that because when I came back to the Lord, I made the decision. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm following you. You're. You know, I, I I humble myself before you. You're my God. And I did drugs for two more months beyond that, I, because I was in a habit. It was it was a habit. It was a, I was addicted to it, and so to try to stop, I would have, I was having physical reactions to that. And then I would I would do it, and then I'd feel guilty, and I'd repent, and I'd read my Bible, and I'd say, Lord, you know, cry out to God, please help me, and this and that. And so, would I have gone to heaven during that two month period of time where I was struggling with that? Yes, I believe I would have. Because I was much different than where I was before that. Because before that, I was openly defiant. I don't care what you say, God. I'm, I am who I am. Is that identity? That's a great way to explain it. Like, I think even for in lesser ways that, that, that as we mature in our faith, that God will challenge us in the ways that we seek to define our own identity. And mm-hmm. It might be something that you might identify yourself as a particular political party or, or not. And that's something that I actually really don't feel comfortable with having labels applied. And it's something that the world tries to do. They want us not to label on you so they can know everything they need to know about you and write you off. Mm-hmm. And and so they can summarize all of all of who you are. But as as you mature, there there might be aspects. It might be even saying I'm a Pentecostal or uh, I'm a whatever. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Lutheran or whatever it is. Those things are labels that that we need to have a loose grip on. We, we need to be willing to let those things fall by the wayside so that if we come in contact with somebody that that uh, we're supposed to show the love of God to, that's not going to be a barrier. I mean, if if you are clinging so hard to being a, a Republican by label and you, you are put in the context of having to um, 
decide between your political views and what the Bible has to say and have a real conversation with somebody about what's eternally important, you better let the one that should lose lose. You know, mm-hmm. and sometimes it, it means that you know I, I don't I don't know. I mean that's kind of a tough issue. We don't all agree on this, but I'm not claiming that one party has the answer to this problem. But I, I think that the only place that we can really firmly stand is is in the identity that God's given us, and that that's personally He's given us each an identity, and it was never up for a vote. He never. Mm-hmm had a committee decide on it. I mean, we don't even ourselves get to decide who he made us to be. He said he knew who we were before he formed us in our mother's womb. And that's the person we actually are. And so we can either agree with him and let him show us who that is, or we can go against him and try and divide it for ourselves. And I think the reason why, why certain ones rise to the surface is because those are the ones that, I mean, there's such a profound defiance almost about mm-hmm. I want to have this identity so strongly that I mean it's whatever else has to fall by the wayside they want to cling to that mm-hmm. and I think yep. that's, that's the core of the issue and, and that's the, the downfall of that yep. Yep. and each, each generation each time period has their own their own thing that, that rises to the top and that becomes the buzzword for whatever Whatever they're, whatever they're into at the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, wow, thank you. Great discussion, great time tonight, Lord. Thanks for continuing to open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to, to your perfect plan for our life. And thank you for revealing yourself through these, <clears throat> these things, these, these, this story of Esther, but also through the discussions that we've had. Lord, you're amazing. You're, you are fantastic. I pray that you'll continue to do that even not even just during this class but every day lord i pray that you'll continue to to speak to us and and uh cause us to grow in all of this we thank you for it father in jesus name amen